Hello, and welcome back to Stuck in the Middle Kingdom with you. I'm Adam, an English teacher who went to China in 2014 and taught English in a small city near Shanghai. This podcast tells the story of my troubled first year, so if you're new to the show, I'd encourage you to start at the beginning. That said, alongside the main story, many episodes focus much more on other issues about Chinese history and culture, and you don't really need to be following the story to listen to that part. Okay, on with the show. I soon learned that Kelly's interpretation of Louise's treatment may have been slightly disingenuous. You might recall that this broadside had been the first of a thousand cuts in our meeting, setting up battle lines between the Chinese management and us, the foreign teachers. Kelly had complained that the Chinese teacher was too harsh with the American kid, who, after all, couldn't be expected to ace Chinese lessons. Responding to the suggestion that the American kids were being bullied by the Chinese teachers. Another teacher, Mark, had stormed off in a huff. But now I realize that there was more to this story. Louisa was a nightmare to teach: disruptive, absent-minded, and stubborn. The Chinese children were fascinated by her lack of self-control, her perceived disrespect for authority. They sat up straight while she flicked her eraser across the room. They raised their hands with an elbow still connected to the table, as good posture decreed. While she sat singing to herself, she cried when she was made to answer a question, or write the alphabet, or sit down. But also, she was charming in her own way. She enjoyed games when she engaged with them. She answered questions wrongly, but、uh, with enthusiasm. She was excitable and starstruck when she saw me in the hallway, and that was nice. It wasn't long before the inevitable was confirmed. Louisa had learning difficulties. That evening, she stopped by at my apartment with her dad, Arizona man. Okay, pumpkin," he said when I answered the door. "Now you apologize to Teacher Adam. Tell him you're sorry." This is how he talked. My approximation of it. The man went on to explain some of the background of her problems in education, but before long, I realized that this had turned into a lecture about my teaching. How I needed to put my foot down. I told the man from Arizona that I'm not having problems with any other kids. I don't really want to start yelling at them. Well, he didn't really hear me and carried on talking about his own teaching style. I then realized, contradicting my own previous realization, that Arizona man just wanted to talk about himself. In class, the kids had begun to recognize Louise's difficulties. They groaned when she was called on to answer a question which everybody knew that she couldn't answer. Just as often, they helped her with her work, and life went on. I had two classes: International Class One, Grade One, and International Class Two, Grade One, totaling fifty-six kids, all seven or eight years old. Louisa was in my second class, which was Kelly's first class. We were both Grade One English teachers, and alternated classes. The homeroom teacher in my classroom was called Tian. She was smiley yet firm, an efficient steamroller of a teacher. She had drilled commands into those kids, making them sit up straight, line up straight, stand up straight when answering a question, salute during the national anthem, eat lunch quick. 
and take fixed toilet and drinking breaks. Compared with that, my classes were like Friday night at the Hacienda. Tian spoke little English, but she was incredibly polite and unreasonably apologetic to me. We rarely exchanged words which weren't necessary, and I always felt comfortable with her working at the next desk. The Chinese teacher in Kelly's class, the one who supposedly treated Louisa badly, was called Yun, and she was younger than Qian, only 24, with big glasses and a stern face which would beam with cheeky glee on special occasions. She spoke good English and acted as a translator when I was teaching in her classroom. She was a first-time teacher of young kids and worked incredibly hard. From the time the kids woke till they slept, she was there. She had a warmth with them which made me doubt Kelly's accusations. And while she wore a smile, it was obvious that she took her new job deadly seriously. She took it upon herself to translate everything I said in class. But the problem is that I say a lot of crap, muttering things while I'm trying to get the projector working or making little jokes for my own amusement. I told her to focus on the key words, and she got a little embarrassed. Later I saw Mark, the teacher who'd stormed out of the meeting. We got chatting in the cafeteria, where he explained to me his take on monetarism and inflation, and how this relates to wage stagnation. Naturally, I'd been waiting for such a conversation. The cafeteria is split over two floors. It has to feed all the kids and staff, so the meal times are staggered. Younger kids go in earlier and shovel their way through a meal at a shocking rate. Then the older ones arrive. Meals are served on metal trays with a single spoon and contain some meat, lots of oily greens, tofu, mushrooms, potato, fruit, and endless rice. Small variations presented themselves throughout the week, and these meals being free, far be it from me to complain. Most of the kids had now left, and I joined Mark for dinner. I was pleasantly surprised that my first conversation with Mark was not going to be the usual game show host dialogue of who you are and where you come from. Nevertheless, I can't say I was really geared up for economics. That's not to say I'm not interested, but Mark was really quite full on about how everyone should stop judging him for his views on economics and just because he thinks that the Fed is going to destroy the country with their quantitative easing doesn't mean he's a bigot, okay? I couldn't agree more. That does seem like quite a leap to make. Anyway, let's just say there's more of Mark to come. I had missed Monday, and the teaching I'd done for the rest of the week was a rather botched effort. Still, when the weekend came, it felt well-deserved. Not knowing our way around, we newbies decided to team up and take the bus into town. This way, I quietly reasoned, I might not get lost again. It was Kelly and her husband, Ralph, Arizona man and his family, Penny and me. This was the first time meeting Penny, a tiny, sprightly woman of midlife from northeast USA. The accent she had approximated the one from Fargo, at least to my ears. The word go-getter was invented for her. Previous year she'd lived in a place called Yulin, she told me, in a cave, brushing her teeth in the drain outside with her neighbours. She shunned the expat life in favour of whatever the locals did, which had caused tension between her and the other foreign teachers at the previous school. At the Cradle of Elites, which is my nickname for the school we worked at, Penny was teaching grade 7, which set her apart from the other foreign teachers, and this may well have suited her independent spirit. I'd experienced the expat team mentality before in Taiwan, 
the assumption that uh, all foreign teachers have to do everything together, like a herd of charging bison. Detractors are eyed with suspicion. God forbid you might go for a walk on your own, or, dare I say, befriend someone who grew up locally. It was a mentality that I noticed to be most strongly held by Americans, although this could be because the majority of the teachers I worked with were American. Either way, it was a booming American voice which rang out through one of Taiwan's night markets. Dumplings! That was John, a huge American colleague. He approached me, a can of Taiwan beer in one hand, some meat on a stick in the other. He spotted a dinky beer in my hand, which on closer inspection turned out to be a fruit beer. This was the first time I had ever drunk fruit beer, and I didn't like it. I thought it might be refreshing, like ginger beer or fruit cider, but it wasn't. I knew it was coming. We're out here on a Friday night and all you've got is a fruit beer? A fruit beer? Adam, be a man, buy a beer, a real beer, come on, jeez you Brits. Oh yes, it all came back when Penny told me of her experiences. We got off the bus besides a large shopping mall called In City. Kelly took charge and led us to Starbucks. Having had my first Chinese meal in the Burger King, I was now a little bit dismayed to be in a Starbucks. I took a seat while the others bought giant drinks and Kelly tried to gleam suggestions for lunch. For a large lady, she's extremely content with making it obvious that food is her number one hobby. Kelly to world, judge me if you want, assholes, this is who I am. You've got to love her for that. The Chinese saying, Min yi shi wei tian, food is the god of the people, was made for Kelly. And so she told us that they've had the hot pot, the Neolithic barbecue, and there's also Papa John's pizza, Baker's pizza, and a Chinese restaurant of some sort. But the hot pot was good, she said. The hot pot was very good. With a certain sense of the inevitable, we decided on a hot pot. But Penny went off on her own strolling down the drab street in search of whatever might be there, not to be seen again until school on Monday. Kelly had warned against individuals dribbling off, escaping her protective eyes, and Arizona man had backed her up by saying that you need to keep your eye on your wallet around here. This, I can now confirm, was born either of sheer paranoia, prejudice, or ignorance. Or Arizona man just says things. And Penny had heroically ignored them. Yes, it's safe to say, I liked Penny from the off. The hot pot was lavish. We had a selection of meats, vegetables and fish wheeled in on ice. It was far more than I can eat, but Kelly ordered more, causing a slight awkwardness because Arizona man's wife, Yong, was desperate to go shopping in Walmart. Burger King, Starbucks, and now Walmart, welcome to the Orient. I hadn't seen a pair of chopsticks since I'd arrived nor a man in a conical bamboo hat standing listlessly in a rice paddy. The Chinese staff had given directions to town by reference to various shopping malls, which all had western models smiling out of giant hanging billboards out front. West was best, so it seemed. In number 89, Shimen Road, a nostalgic Chinese film set in 1980s Shanghai, a young Chinese couple find themselves in the unlikely presence of a bottle of Coca-Cola. This everyday image, commonplace now to the point of cliché, was remarkable to them because communist China had until recently been shut off from the world and all its sugary goodness. Before they opened the coke, 
the girl recalled that it had to be drunk with ice. So off went the young man, bounding through Shanghai in search of ice. China's fascination with the cultural products of the West has, in less than 40 short years, become rampant consumerism. As a telling symbol of the way that Western ideals have been co-opted or rejected in China, Beijing's democracy war, a brief flourishing of public calls for democracy from an idealistic youth in the late 70s, is now hidden among shopping malls. And that was the first week in my new job over. It took a while to get through it, but from now on, I expected things to settle down into some kind of routine. So next time on Stuck in the Middle Kingdom with you, we turn to that other titan of communist China, Deng Xiaoping, and explore how and why the communists got to be just so capitalist. <laughs>